Hello, I am Marianna Salem, aka Mary. I am a Lebanese Aboriginal bisexual woman. Uh, hello, I'm Duryadhan Hawk, aka Daya or Dee. I'm an Indonesian Pakistani non binary lesbian. We are two writers who love movies, television, and books, especially when they're gay. And welcome to Gay V Club, where we will be analysing LGBT texts that we like, that we don't like, and how we relate to these texts as gay people of colour. So for our first episode, we wanted to talk about the 2019 TV show Good Omens, specifically the characters Crowley and Aziraphale. Just to recap, Good Omens is a series based off the 1990 novel Good Omens or the Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter by Neil Gaiman and Sir Terry Pratchett. It stars David Tennant and Michael Sheen as Crowley and Aziraphale, who are respectively a demon and an angel who have been secret best friends for 6,000 years, but have accidentally misplaced the Antichrist and are racing around London trying to prevent Armageddon and a war that's been brewing since time began. This was a video essay that we've been wanting to make for a while, but we don't have time as we're both full-time uni students. Nope. <laughs> Some of the questions that we wanted to ask today about the relationship between Crowley and Aziraphale are, is it subtext? Is it queer baiting? How can it be both? How is the relationship in the show different to the novel, as in how is it gayer or not as gay, and does it elevate the relationship? Obviously, we're going to look at Neil Gaiman, what Neil Gaiman has said and what the actors think and the testimonials of how they wrote and played the characters in general. We also wanted to look at the general marketing of the show and the relationship, um, how subtext and ambiguity has been used for their advantage and whether that's fair to LGBT audiences. Also, side note, if you hear D or I saying the word Kraz throughout the episode, that is our quick shorthand to refer to Crowley and Aziraphale as a ship, because we are Australian and are therefore inherently too lazy to say ineffable husbands every time. Yeah, sometimes also we may say as to refer to Aziraphale. Yeah, well. we don't, I don't know, I've seen a lot of people refer to him as Azira, which I just feel like is also an effort. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, well, it's like three syllables. Yeah. Anyway. So, is it subtext or is it queer baiting? What's the difference between these two things? So, subtext is an underlying theme that is conveyed throughout a text. Uh, queer baiting is a form of gay subtext. Um, it's a much more deliberate technique that's been popularized in more recent media of this century because it plays into the idea of fandom and like people who ship gay relationships in media, which are never actually canonized in the text themselves. Yeah, yeah. Like... The way or I rarely canonized. Yeah. Like the way I think of it is almost all queer baiting is subtext, but not all subtext is queer baiting. Subtext is the general term for things that are happening underneath what's explicitly said, like what can be implied and what can be inferred. Yeah, and also historically, like gay subtext was the only way that these relationships could be represented in literature or film, because obviously it wouldn't have been allowed like either due to censorship or caused by homophobia. It's it's kind of actually, I don't know, sometimes I find shipping like a condescending or just like a sad way. Um, yeah, it's much more than that. Because, you know, a lot of people say like shipping isn't activism. Like you see that on Tumblr all the time or even on Twitter. But for a lot of time, it was like a form of rebellion, like a way of reading a text for, for queer people. It's just like a general way for us to engage with the text by like trying to identify ourselves within it or like inserting ourselves into a story because no one will tell it for us. I do think queer baiting has a more cynical edge to it though, just because like I think I find that it's when people, usually non-LGBT people, um, are writing to exploit that desire from us to see ourselves. Um, they want to encourage that level of engagement because obviously it makes them more money. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, because it's just not generally done with any good intentions other than for capital gain. Um, and it isn't just gay people who they want to engage either because, you know, unfortunately in fandom there are a lot of, like, straight women who fetishize gay relationships mm -hmm. between men especially who the writers want to appeal to. And we see you, we see you, and we don't like you. <laughs> please drop off the face of the earth. <laughs> What's a solid recent example for our audience, uh, of pure queer baiting. Good omens aside, what's something you can point to that's definitely queer baiting? Uh, we don't like to say the S word, so I'm only going to say it once. Um, Sherlock, uh, the 2010 BBC, the BBC adaptation mm. specifically. Um, there's also Hannibal. Um, what else is there? 
Um, Merlin. Um, just for some variety, because sometimes it can happen with women as well. Um, Grace and Frankie. So that's queer baiting, and that subtext. So then, given those things, what's queer coding? Queer coding is used in both queer subtext and queer baiting. Mm-hmm. where certain characteristics or behaviours that we, like, associate with being queer... Or, like, you know, have been um, associated with being queer by society. Yeah, they've been established that way. Um, like, these, like, characteristics or behaviours or idiosyncrasies that often, like, they have a negative connotation due to homophobia and just general traditional ideas of gender and how gender should be performed and what pe- gay people get wrong about that. Um, so, like, to code a character with uh, these various characteristics or behaviours, um, it's been used to imply that these characters are gay without having to explicitly say it. Um, queer coding is a way of making characters gay without actually having them say it out loud. Not making them gay. Not making them gay, but, like, portraying them as gay, maybe. Yeah, I mean, just without having them to say it out loud. Yeah, like it's a way of signaling. Or have anyone else say it out loud, but there's often ways that they do that anyway. Yeah, but, but that's, that's part. part of queer coding. Yeah. All right, let's talk about our boys. Our boys. <laughs> <laughs> the boys. Um, so in Good Omens, several aspects about Aziraphale and Crowley's relationship are undeniably queer coded. There's the 6,000 years of partnership, Mm -hmm. the clandestine meetings, the excruciatingly slow progress of them admitting what they mean to each other. Um, You go too fast for me. Don't. The way Crowley calls him Angel and other endearments. Um, Also, just the religious rebellion of an angel and a demon being intimate friends. Like, is there anything more gay than religious rebellion? But also, like, with Kraz, even though that's obviously how the relationship's been framed, the characters themselves, like, as individuals, are queer-coded in many ways. For instance, my my boy, my boy Crowley, he's a diehard Queen fan. He wears a different wig and pair of sunglasses, like, every era, and, you know, he walks like that. <laughs> or is that just how David Tennant walks? I think it's, I think it's a cho- character choice, don't you? It's a very queer-coded walk. It's a very queer-coded walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, his rank as a fallen angel, um, uh, now a demon of temptation, which is associated with sin, which uh, which is associated with deviancy, which we all know people to this day still associate that with. Look, it all supports that his sexuality would be anything but biblically approved. Also, there's ultimately, like, the double standard where basically if you saw, like, absolutely if people saw a man and a woman uh, behaving the way um, that Crowley and Az do in Like, a, doing what they do in this series. Yeah, doing what they do in the series. Like, with um, no difference at all other than... Yeah, like, we just supplant Crowley and Az for, a, you know, some, some, some A-grade heteros and no one would consider... No one would dispute... Or question whether or not they were in love or whether or not they were a couple, which I think is the most basic argument you can give for yeah, it's, them. It's being... the heteronormativity. Yeah. Uh, Aziraphale, on the other hand, is a timid, mild-mannered, effeminate angel uh, who owns an antique bookshop. He's a regular at discreet gentlemen's clubs, and his juxtaposition to Crowley and his cautious hesitation can be read as classic gay repression. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. as is Amen. just, um, he's much more frightened than Crowley, or he comes across as more frightened than Crowley about heaven and hell, finding out about their relationship, which, you know, it brings us to the forbidden love aspect of Kraz as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> What's gayer than forbidden love? Uh, yeah. Literally nothing. That's the answer like, to that my is... religious rebellion question. <laughs> But literally, like, there's nothing gay. Like, I I don't understand why heteros think they have, like, a monopoly on forbidden love. No, like, uh, yeah. You know, they have no real source of drama. Yeah. So this is an adaptation of a novel, obviously, and I don't think we can talk about the TV series before we talk about the OG text, which was written by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. I think it's important to mention, though, that obviously Neil is the one that wrote the adaptation because Sir Terry is no longer with us. 
this was a co-written story whose adaptation had one essentially one person running it like um as well as obviously neil having influences um like from amazon and bbc who produced it yeah I'm a huge fan of this novel, as you know. I've been a huge fan of this novel for a very long time. It was one of the first things I read where I thought about, you know, like when I was 16, I thought, oh, oh man, they, they could be, they could be in love. <laughs> they could be gay. It was very much like, oh my goodness, like. Anyway, yeah. You saw that subtext. <laughs> yeah, I saw the subtext. Like I, I really did. Like there, there was see. The interesting thing I remember reading it was thinking like, but there's nothing in the book that really confirms it. And it took me, it took me a long time reading Good Omens as I got older. Um, and also like watching a lot more of like gay media, yeah. like in general. But as I got older, I, I realized like, you know, you don't really need to see something like you don't really need something to be confirmed for you to believe that it's there. Um, more of that later. Yes, more of that later. Um, but the the way I feel like Crowley and Az are portrayed in the book is very matter of fact compared to how they are in the show. Like you, you don't get much backstory in the book. You you don't get that whole beautiful like sequence in Hard Times, episode three, <laughs> the Holy Grail. Um, when you see them throughout history, like there are some flashbacks. You know, for instance, in the Garden of Eden. Um, like the way the show starts with the scene of them in the garden is exactly the way the book starts. I remember like when I watched the first episode of Good Omens, I was like freaking out. I was like, this is it. This is yeah. it. <laughs> um, but throughout time, like, but throughout time you don't get that same backstory. So the book, they're just presented like, yeah, they go out to dinners. They have nights together, like where they're just drinking and hanging out. They spend a lot of time together in their secret little context they don't go to concerts together i know they go like that's really cute they do all this stuff like you know i feel like in the book it's very much like we're gay keep moving like you know it's not keep scrolling keep scrolling but the show actually i think added much more to the backstory like the big thing i think that changed for me the way the relationship is portrayed in the book and i i don't know maybe if you agree with me on this but Mm -hmm. in the book it's it's presented as something that is already fully evolved you know, uh, like the relationship is fully there and established, whereas the show took the angle of like, no, they still have things, you know, capital T things that they <laughs> that they stuff to do, Laurie. <laughs> stuff to do, Laurie. Thanks. Uh, why are we quoting the Walking I'm Dead? I'm sorry, I've never seen the Walking Dead. I know. Dead. Like, anyway, why did I do that? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, go, 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 anyway, go. but yeah, the relationship is fully, fully there. Like, you know, they've but. But in the show, it's like they still have stuff that they need to deal with and they haven't talked about. So it's very much like, you know, I also think there's a lot of stuff I've seen in the fandom as well, because you see a lot of people writing fix like, oh, they didn't have their first kiss until after the Armageddon happened. And it's just really odd to me because I can't imagine. No way. I can't imagine. Like, all respect to those people. Like, I've read some very cute, like, post-Armageddon fics that are lovely. But, like, it's really odd to me because I can't imagine in 6,000 years, like, they've never kissed each other. Like, it... Like, once. Not not even once. You know, that, that that's really... I mean, it's cute that people write those fics, but... Like, but in the book, it's presented as a very much fully evolved. And the Armageddon happens and they're just still there. Like, I feel like Crowley and Aziraphale remain friends no matter what, and they're still together no matter what. Whereas in the show, it's like Armageddon really pushes them, you know, it almost like make their relationship public. To come out. Yeah, because they have to, they they kind of have to when the battle starts, like between heaven and hell. Yeah, I only read the novel for the first time at the start of this year, and I basically agree because my first impressions while reading it um, was like when, like I was thinking like either like when, are Az and Crowley going to smash? Yeah! Or, like, are we just supposed to assume that they've been doing it on the regular for the last 6,000 years? But that's how it's written. Like, they've yeah, been it doing really it is. on the reg. It's just, like, yeah, it's very matter-of-fact, you know? Yeah, like, yes, this is them. This is they. Keep scrolling. <laughs> but, yeah, like, to me especially, I think just it was the fact that those characters in the novel were actually subjected to quite a lot of homophobia Mm. like it's quite sad but that's what made me assume that that's what they were yeah i mean there's a lot of references doesn't the witchfinder guy call of zero file a lot of homophobic slurs in the book and even in the show too but in the book yeah um in the book it's more overt but like there's also that whole 
encounter with Anathema where, like, at first she's very wary or, like, frightened of these two strange men until she hears Crowley call as Angel. Um, And then, like, she hears him calling as an endearment and she realizes, oh, nothing to worry about. Yeah, like... And, you know, the subtext is that she assumes that they're gay. Yeah, oh, it's fine, they're gay, like, like... That is supposed to be the joke. Should it be the joke, though? No. Like, gross jokes aside, but do you think the book required them to grow as much? Like, I feel like the TV series went to great pains to be like, their relationship is still evolving, even now. Yeah, um, like, that's because in the TV series, like, the relationship of Kraz is the heart of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Like, in the book, they're only there for maybe 20% of the of the of the whole thing so like mostly in the beginning and then at the very end and the the middle is too occupied with all the other characters they definitely have a more active role in the series than they do in the book like while the book places Kraz as just being you know two or more players like in the ineffable game of Armageddon yeah the series makes a more visible effort to make their relationship the emotional anchor of the story with Kraz not only having the majority of their book scenes included in the adaptation, but also, like, some extra bits. I just feel like the TV show, like, does make that effort because it fleshes out their 6,000-year-old friendship beyond the scope of the immediate Armageddon plot. Yeah, there's more stuff. Yeah. Like, in the book, all they really do is misplace the Antichrist and they spend a lot of the book thinking, we did it, whoops. <laughs> yeah, like, they... F- up and then they spend a lot of the book just drinking and like wondering like you know oh no what are we going to do (laughs) (laughs) they don't actually do anything and i honestly can't think of anything else like they they no, but they really don't do a lot like the whole middle of the story is just them going like oh we messed up yeah then they just show up at the end (laughs) i think it's interesting though like a big difference i think is in the show when aziraphale quote-unquote, you know, dies. Mm-hmm. Like, when Crowley thinks Aziraphale is dead. Like, in the book, he's very like, okay, I may as well just go sit in a bar and, you know, wait out Armageddon. I wouldn't say casually, but he doesn't react as intensely in the book. Yeah, like, you don't... That's because you don't hear Somebody to Love by Queen playing in the background oh. when you're reading that section of the story. Do you remember when you... <laughs> do you remember when you watched that scene with me and I was, like, crying? That, that's my song, man. That's yeah, my song. Yeah. Like, honestly, the first time I watched the series, it took me, like, a week to get through, and then I wasn't I wasn't too attached to it, but when I rewatched it with Mary, who, was, who has been a big fan of the book, like, for several years, like, that just made me really love it. Aww. <laughs> it was just, but, like, it was just so much gayer. It was. <laughs> I was so happy, which is the bottom line that I'm trying to get at. Like, the show I felt, as someone who was a fan of the book, was very much more explicit, like, in the nature of Crowley and Aziraphale's relationship, like that they are romantically involved. That being said, though, I don't think it was as explicit as it could have been portraying that, but it was still much more obvious in the show than it was in the book, and that's very much because we get all that extra content. Oh, and yeah. all, like, and also the other extra content that I forgot to mention is the end. Like, obviously where the book ends, it's more or less um, the, um, the Armageddon sequence that you see in the show. Maybe a bit after with them at the Ritz, but but you like you don't hear about those consequences that As and Crowley have to face because of their actions. Like you don't learn how they've they're dealt with by heaven and hell. They just sort of talk about it like, yeah, it'll probably be pretty bad, but they don't yeah, really they don't. care. Like they don't really care because as long as they're together, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but in the show, um, that is a very specific thing. It's almost an epilogue for what happens. Like. Like, for what happens to them now. Literally the last half of the finale. Yeah, like, almost the whole finale is framed around what happens to them. Like, it's not so much framed around overcoming Armageddon. It's literally just framed around what happens to them. Yeah, that's because the episode opens with David Tennant walking into hell, but he's he's behaving quite weirdly. Like, he's not behaving (laughs) like himself. And I, I thought that was suspicious, but... I know, I know, I know you did. But, like, because I'm a dumbass, I just thought he was... I just thought he was scared. <laughs> I just thought he was scared. You know, like, when they received that piece of paper that said, like, choose your faces wisely, like, I thought, oh, that's what's happening. Not me, though. I really thought you got it. <laughs> I know. I know. I just went in a different direction. Yeah, like, I remember you specifically mentioned when they are in the park together, like, 
before they get like abducted by by the angels and by the other angels and the demons like you're like oh look like Aziraphale is, is circling Crowley the same way that Crowley circles Aziraphale usually and I was I was so worried that you'd figured it out. Let me put this on the record. I didn't interpret them as swapping bodies. I thought it was that they had been together so long they'd taken on each other's qualities. That is a much better ending, I think. Yeah, like I interpret it as like because they have been friends for so long, because they have loved each other for so long, they had taken on each other's qualities, both in an emotional sense and a like a behavioral sense as well. Like manifested physically? Yeah, like, but also in the sense that they've loved each other the way they have, like, in the way that they have their, they are also a different being physically, which is how I assume they had survived the holy water and the hellfire. Like they'd evolved. They, yeah, like they'd evolved. Like, I assume their love for each other had made them evolve into something else. And that's why I'm low-key disappointed. Like, Neil Gaiman, if you're hearing this. (laughs) Like, I'm serious, man. Like, I was low-key disappointed that all they'd done was swap bodies. Like, but that's also very gay because they're swapping bodies. But still. Yeah, there's that There's that whole thing in episode five where Aziraphale, like, appears to Crowley as a ghost, um, like, in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, pity, pity, I can't, you Go know. inside you. <laughs> that's so gay. Also, it's just, like, very gay. To say that these two love each other so much that they can successfully impersonate one another mm-hmm. to the point where no one notices because no one else knows them better than they know each other. Like, they say the biggest sign of love is, like, understanding, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, to understand someone, like, at that level is very romantic. Like, that idea of to understand someone is to love them, you know? I also, for the record, love how Crowley is a very awkward character and he's not yeah, as suave. I, I love, like, he's such an awkward bean. Like, he's he's not as suave as you think he is, but, like, you know when Az is doing the impression of him, he's, like, super suave. So, so it works. Like, this, like, like all that flirting, like, does yeah. work. <laughs> like, that's what makes it gayer, which is, like, one of the differences from the book, I think. Yeah. So, uh, next we wanted to talk about what Neil Gaiman has been saying outside of the show, like um, as well as Michael Sheen's fan interactions. I I want you to go first on this because I know you've got beef. Not not more than you, but <laughs> like a thing that a thing that um, we wanted to look at was how this show has been promoted and um, basically what the writers and actors have been saying. So Michael Sheen, who plays Aziraphale, has probably been the most notable advocate for Kraus. Yeah, like. At one point, I'm pretty sure they were calling him, like, the the fandom boyfriend. And, like, he was, like, he tweeted to someone who was telling him this and was, like, oh, that's okay as long as we all share the bill or something. That just, that just reminds me of when we used to call the popular celebrity crushes, like, internet boyfriends. Now we just call them, like, white boys of the month. Michael Sheen was the white boy of the month when Good Omens came out. Like, I would say David Tennant was, but he's been... <laughs> He's been the white boy of the month for a long time. No, with David, it was more like everyone who crushed on him and Doctor Who kind of just resurfaced because it was like... And what about it? Relevant. What what about it? Because he was like relevant again. What about it? You got something to say? (laughs) Want to say it to my face? I just can't relate as a dyke. I just can't. I understand. It's fine. I don't even think I can relate to myself with it sometimes. (laughs) Anyway. Like... Yeah, Michael Sheen, with his level of fan interaction and, like, engagement, he's not really, he's not really holding back. Like, I don't think he says it's gay, but he will say that they're in love, that they're husbands, like, through his very public interactions on Twitter, like, he's acknowledging it and, like, giving people that affirmation. Yeah, yeah, he's, like, acknowledging that they're lovers and he talks about them being love. I can't think of a specific time where he said you know, like gay, like where he specifically said the gay, like he's talking about it enough in a sp- like in an explicitly romantic sense that he doesn't yeah. need to. Like, not to mention he stated that he played the character in that way anyway. Yeah, and then there's um, there's what Neil said. So as I was saying before, like I do believe the show is written in a much more explicitly romantic way than the book. Which I was really glad to see. Like, I've been following Neil Gaiman on Tumblr for as long as I've been on Tumblr. Like, I'm pretty sure it's one of the reasons I joined Tumblr in the first place. And, like, one of the cool things he does is, like, answer questions about his books and movies. Like, people people always are asking him questions and, 
Honestly, like sometimes it's cool of him to answer though. It is cool of him. Like I'm, I'm actually, but I do have a fear we're going to John Green him one day, and he's just going to like get sick of it and run away. <laughs> but someone, someone asked him about Good Omens and whether like he supported his queer fans who could see themselves in Kraz, regardless of how he wrote them as friends or partners. And he responded, quote unquote, absolutely in brackets. And I wrote Aziraphale and Crowley as a love story in the TV version. Mm. Mm, yes he did say this and i don't know i think when he says love story in this context he does mean it romantically like neil has like had many asks like this where he's talking about the way he wrote as and crowley he has even defended his stance on writing them as more romantic in the show because a lot of people were like but i interpret it this way like and he was like that's cool you can do that but this is how i wrote them in the show so he's been talking about it a lot like not to give more credit than anyone should give someone for saying the most basic things. But I think it's kind of good that he is talking about this and defending his take on them rather than doing the the wishy-washy thing we know a lot of writers have done in the past, which is, like, you can just do whatever you want, sunshine. Yeah. Like, that's that's fair. But also, I think we've come to my beef. Okay. Okay? Like, yeah, I'm ready for your beef. Like, yeah, he's, he's saying all these great things, but he's saying them on his freaking Tumblr. Mm. technically everyone can see it but like realistically only a very selective demographic of good omens's audience is going to read it and like he's just doing it in a way that's very like safe and ambiguous and Mm. you know one of the things we wanted to talk about is that kraz is very much deliberately ambiguous and this ambiguity is strategic yeah and like so your beef your beef really is how useful is it for a director or a creator or you know, a writer, to confirm something outside of it actually being explicitly written. Like, mm-hmm. how useful is it for them, like, to us? Now, like, one thing is that it's very specifically done for clout. Like, this kind of thing where details about the story are revealed by its creator, like, outside of the actual text, is what's become known as Word of God confirmation. Right. I honestly wish... It wasn't called that. Like, I prefer to call it pulling J.K. Rowling, <laughs> as she's probably the most infamous case of this phenomenon. Yeah. But, like, yeah, this is done quite a lot in Good Omens, not not to as bad a degree as, as HP, no. but, like, just, like, also just it's not done, like, just in relation to Kraz, but also, yeah, yeah it's come, it's in relation to genders of some of the other characters as well. Like, yeah. For instance, Pollution, who is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like, has been confirmed by Neil Gaiman outside of the show as being a non-binary character, which, like, I feel is a very tokenistic approach to representing trans and non-binary people. Like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like they just sprinkled that in for, like, woke points. Yes. Like, without thinking about it too much. It's something that's not explicitly clear in the show. And it's something that can just very easily go over the audience's heads. Like, it's just, it's very ambiguous. Yeah, like, and it, most, like, mostly in the show, God refers to to pollution, pollution yeah. as they. But I think, doesn't God also refer to the other horsemen as they as well? Yeah, like, even even about God, like, who's voiced by Francis McDormand, like, people are going crazy that God had a woman's voice and they were very much, like, patting themselves on the back for that, even though we don't really know God's gender either. But, like, <laughs> back to pollution, though, like, it's quite a strange choice to select that character in particular to be the non-binary one. Like, why is it just pollution? And, like, the because the four horsemen are supposed to be concepts, like, death, war, famine, and pollution. They're not supposed to be people. They're, yeah. they're embodiments of concepts. Yeah, like, they're literally just manifestations of humanity's worst qualities. Like, why they need to have a gender at all or be gendered or not be gendered is, like makes no sense to me yeah so like why is it just pollution that's non-binary like pollution is played by an actress of filipino descent uh lois Faberis. like like while i'm fairly certain that there's not much to it other than wanting to you know get that clout like for diversity etc like the i think the implications of choosing the character that's played by an asian woman like it's hard for me to ignore this like as a non-binary asian lesbian like yeah in Western media, there is that stigma, not not quite stigma, but like that, like in the portrayal of Asian women, like they're either unfortunately like either hypersexualized due to fetishization, due to racism, 
or on the other end of the spectrum they are asexualized because like they're not gender conforming enough for western standards which is also due to racism like not just with fiction we're seeing this a lot with how public figures are treated like most particularly athletes um so like especially when we take like another horseman like war into account like war is played by a white woman with you know she's got flowing red hair and she's just unmistakably feminine but like still you know cool like in a leather jacket and stuff like that so like also like she gets like a much longer sequence as well like with the introduction yeah and they changed that from the book as well like she's just in the book she just like messes up some people in italy but for some reason italy yeah like in the movie it has a weird I, I don't know what the problem, like, Orientalist vibe, like, she, for some reason, like, all these random people are meeting up in Africa and she's just there, like... I don't think to, that's Orientalism because it's Africa, but... Yeah. Like, I don't... Yeah, I, I get what you mean. Like, yeah, like on very, that level, yeah. It's, it's like, on the level... That, that's probably not the right word, but it... Yeah, just the fact that it's a white lady coming into this and, like, wreaking havoc, like, there's... There's probably, like, somewhere where they wanted black woke points for that, but honestly, yeah, I can't, I, I can't I give like it to I feel like it backfired and also just back to in terms of like her gender presentation it's like why is it a white woman gets to have that kind of complexity in the representation like of the gender while while people of color are polarized instead yeah like it's it's honestly just a lazy way to do non-binary representation it's not even really non-binary representation because we don't know this thing like we don't know just from watching the show just from watching the show you you wouldn't know that they're that they are non-binary and the horsemen like I said, like, really aren't supposed to have genders anyway. So to assign a gender or no gender specifically is, like, it's, it's really weird. weird. <laughs> like, why? Speaking of non-binary representation and um, being a gender, there's also what Neil Gaiman has said outside of the text regarding Aziraphale and Crowley. Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay. Yeah, like, just to be clear, we're not upset at people who want to headcanon these characters as being a gender or, or trans. Like, other non-binary members of the audience who want to see themselves in as in Crowley like we absolutely support that this is more about Neil Gaiman taking credit for something he didn't really do yeah like the thing is like he said on Twitter that essentially because as in Crowley are not human they are quote-unquote genderless the weird part is like for me the weird part of this is that he seems to use this idea that um like as and crowley have no gender to evade questions of them being specifically gay mm-hmm. which is a very odd thing to do like them like, it's so- like like them being genderless is a fine like it's fine as a concept but it's most certainly not the way he wrote them in the book i mean throughout the entire book and the show they are referred to by male pronouns and they are specifically in the form of men like they even picked cisgendered like men to play them you know you know what i mean yeah like i think the issue again is that people are crediting this now deleted tweet as like proof of non-binary representation when like absolutely no effort was put into it all like the entire show they look behave and are treated like cis men they also they like they refer to each other as he like crowley is described as um aziraphale's boyfriend yeah in the dark glasses Yeah. yeah yeah like like, these are two cis men playing them, like I said, so I don't think we can, with good conscience, credit Gaiman for that. Like, that's also the issue when there are points in the show where Aziraphale and Crowley are presented, like, in a non-masculine yeah. way as a joke. Yeah, like, just because no one inside the screen laughs at it, like, doesn't mean it wasn't written for people outside of the screen to laugh, like... Yeah, like, you know, the, uh, the joke about Crowley being the nanny. Yeah, and, and yeah. um... There's also that moment when Aziraphale, when he's um, inhabiting the body of Miranda, Miranda Richardson's character. Shout out, shout yes. out to Miranda Richardson though. We we, we love you. Yeah. Like she was so funny. She really was. But like, <laughs> but back to the word your your word of God thing. Yeah. Like how much is it really worth it? It's so flimsily done and it's just tokenistic. Gaiman, Gaiman is not saying it in any way that's meaningful. Yeah. Like, whether they're genderless or not is not as important to the story they're trying to tell. Like, it's it's very much the just for these points, well, I'm aware I'm aware that there are genderless gender. I'm cool. I I, I know that... The, that there are genderless I, genders. Yeah, I know that there are genderless genders, guys. No, but, like, obviously, again, um, if you interpret the characters that way, that's great. Like, I wish I could see them that way myself, but I just simply can't. Like, uh... But I do understand, like, if this is something you feel strongly about as a trans non-binary person, like, 
that this kind of validation and acknowledgement, like from a creator of a text you enjoy, like can feel good. But Absolutely. like I just I just implore you to not be satisfied by this basically. Yeah. Like I want you to want more yes. than this bare minimum because we we absolutely deserve more. Yes. Like but but all that just brings us back to the strategic ambiguity where they like entertain the idea enough for mm-hmm. some LGBT fans to be satisfied with what they've ge- been given. Like, in my head, what I've called it for a long time is throwing your bone and calling it a feast. That is, that's a really good phrase. When we were first writing this, we actually had the working title of Schrodinger's Gaze. Yes. Because it's very much like they are if you want them to be, but they aren't if you don't. It's something that's flown under the radar. Yeah, like, especially because with media that is explicitly gay, like, it's very difficult for it to be labelled with anything other than it being gay. Literally the bisexual. She chose to call it the bisexual, so in this case, that's not an example. But um, we love you, Desiree. We love you, Desiree Akhavan. (laughs) No, but I mean more like, in, for instance, like when um, Xavier Dolan premiered his most recent film, Matthias and Maxime, at Mm. Cannes, like he, he talked about how there was a double standard, like where his film was being lauded as a gay film, and not just like as a romance like he said something like um you don't hear people say things like oh i saw a really good heterosexual film the other day (laughs) do those exist (laughs) yeah probably because they don't exist good heterosexual movies don't exist except um that one made by gregoraki but like back to good omens if it was like if even if it was like the slightest bit explicit like if they for instance like kissed at any point on screen it would be like automatically labeled as gay tv like it would it would be undeniable and you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be making this episode that's very sad like there's nothing in the show that makes it undeniable like it's it's very it's very easy to deny like it it goes over people's heads i've talked to other adults in my life who've watched good omens and they've disagreed with me on thinking that it's gay and i i can't even i can't even concretely argue with them and say that they're wrong because there's nothing in the text that can make me concretely go well it is yeah. yeah, and then there are, of course, like, those fans who have asked Neil, like, is it okay if I don't want to see them as gay? And he says it's okay for them, like, if they want to ignore it. So, like, but, yeah. Yeah, like, this, but this brings us back to whether the ambiguity is a good thing and whether that's fair to LGBT people in the audience. No, yeah, because, like, despite all these things that Gaiman and the actors have been saying about it, like, in the show it is very deliberately written as ambiguous, like, so, like, this is done in order to appeal to the many fans who have interpreted them as gay, like, these past 30 years, like, without also not disgruntling the many conservative, homophobic people in the audience. Yeah, because when you write this way, it allows them to appeal to a much wider audience, a much wider yeah. market, and therefore achieve the main goal in any commercial production in this capitalist hell society we live in, which is to make as much blah as possible. Yeah, just to make as much money as possible. So, like... While we can and have been arguing that what we're presented with is gay, like we can't actually ignore this narrative of subtlety and ambiguity that was clearly driven like for financial advantage. Because, you know, ultimately to to value the opinions of homophobic audiences and to strive for their endorsement of your art, like rather mm. than rather than make like a powerful, undeniable representation of gay love, like it's it's cowardly. <laughs> It, it's like resigning yeah it's cowardly it is is totally cowardly to resign the romance of your story to what basically amounts to an inside joke for fans who know better mm-hmm. while still leaving it open for bigots to ignore and invalidate like i'm sorry but that's cowardly yeah and like not that it has to be radical but like it is truly the most boring thing you could have done do you ever think about how this is 2019. We're nearly in a new decade. The 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 mm-hmm. Roaring Twenties 2.0, <laughs> and we still can't just say things. Yeah, like the novel came out like 30 years ago. Good Good Omens is actually one of the first texts, like in the early days of the internet, that had what we know today is like fandom. Yeah, it was one of like the first times that a text was engaged with in this way, like at this level that we're still consuming at today, like on the internet, like. 30 years from then and we can't even get much more than that even though like it's crazy to me like we're literally seeing it like visually (laughs) like this is not a book 
that your mum has in her bookshelf anymore. Like this is literally something we're seeing visually now, and it's it's still not no. there. Like right all in front of you, like all, there's no room for other interpretation. Well, there's less room for interpretation. Yeah, like all this extra stuff. Like even with hard times, which we do love. Mm-hmm. It's 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 still not gay enough. <laughs> like it's it's really rude almost. Like for me, I think it's rude to include so much subtext. Like so much mocking from the angels, especially the angels. Like, oh, is your boyfriend with the glasses going to save you? Like they even they literally use the suffering of homophobia as a trope to get the audience, yes. yeah, to get the audience to root for them more, but but still don't even have the guts to actually say they're gay. Yeah, like the source novel is like 30% homophobic jokes. Like maybe borderline homophobic, but mm. when it's like to that extent, like it is straight up, I think. Yeah. So like yeah. it is a letdown for there to be no payoff from that. Like even 30 years later when when Guyman as a writer is supposed to have, you know, learned better by now. I want to be an optimist like that maybe Neil wanted to do that, but like there is a lot more constraints with this being television, with this being yeah. Amazon. Like I, I really don't want to run into the trap of, that whole showrunner trap of like he is the person responsible for what has befallen us, us because it's not just him. Yeah, obviously. Like, yeah, I mean we can look at like you know some of his more recent work where he definitely has improved like in these aspects as well. Mm. But like there's many factors obviously that have contributed to this ambiguity. But like thirty years later and that's still disappointing and it's just not fair to do it like this. Like no. it's not fair to really engage with fans outside of the text in this way, but to not care enough about us to actually make that statement like in the actual text like to make it undeniable like we we love crabs but it's it's something that can very easily be taken away from us yeah like with all this stuff that neil gaiman's been saying on twitter on like social media like he could have just as easily been like oh that's nice like when people tweeted about them Mm -hmm. being gay or whatever like they they could have gone down the path of Two other head writers that we won't name. The S word. The S word. <laughs> like they, they could, <laughs> they could have easily gone in that direction. Like he really could have easily gone in that same direction as those two. <laughs> but he, he, like he would have been just as valid. Yes. Yeah. Like he would have, like him. It would have been just like him being homophobic and and saying it's not true, but he didn't, and he didn't, and but. That's just still not enough. It's not enough to just support those readings of the text. If you truly want to support them, you should actually put it in there, you know? At the end of the day, as hard as it, it's a hard pill to swallow, but at the end of the day, like, something like Good Good Omens is obviously, like, it's not made for us. It's made for the biggest audience that it can find. Yeah, it's not for us. It's for everyone. Yeah, and... Unfortunately, if you want something to be for everyone, it has to appeal to everyone in that horrible way because homophobia is a very easy joke for a lot of people to have. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a sad note to end on like we we, we love good omens actually, obviously, but <laughs> well, we're also we're also firm believers in being critical. Like I think to love something is to to criticize it. Like when it comes to media. You can't really love something without knowing it and criticizing it like nothing's totally perfect unless maybe you make it yourself (laughs) but even then i think if i made something i'd possibly do something problematic without realizing just because everyone's got vices that they don't realize everyone's got biases and things that they're not aware of yeah also you're you're writing you're writing like as a bisexual woman of color and not everyone is going to read your work the way you intend because not everyone is a bisexual woman of color unfortunately like yeah, and the thing is that we're not straight white men mm-hmm. like Neil Gaiman and probably like a lot of the people who are pulling the strings at Amazon. So like that's why we read it differently. But I do think no matter who you are, to watch that scene, you know the scene, the you go <laughs> you go too far. My face is on the floor. Oh yes, let it be noted her face is on the floor. We are technically just on the floor though to record this, so <laughs> we're already on the floor. We're flawed. Don't expose us. <laughs> like, but, any, but you know, you go too fast for me, Crowley. Yeah. Oh, like, that just scene. hits you like a truck. Yeah, also, um, just like the whole episode, Hard Times, it's just like, yeah, obviously, it's it's the only thing that we've mentioned so far, but it really is like that good. Like, just, although I love that they <laughs> they have that whole, like, it's not really a montage, it's just. No, but they it have is. That whole, yeah, it they is. have that whole recap, like, 
that whole that whole previously on Kras, and then it plays, and then it plays the, and then it plays the opening sequence theme song like thirty minutes into the episode. It's like, like, thank you so much. Like we forgot we were like, watching. I almost forgot what show I was watching. Like if you hadn't put that in. <laughs> I just, I'm so happy. Can I just, I'm, I'm so happy that that sequence like was basically nominated for, for an like go, a Golden Globe because of the costumes. Golden, like, no, an Emmy for the costuming. Yeah, yeah. Like, that 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 scene was no, no. <laughs> yeah, that episode they submitted that episode to the Emmys for outstanding costume design in a sci-fi or or fantasy. If uh, for those who don't know me, I'm really obsessed with costume design. Yes. So like, I just really love the detail in that whole episode. Mm-hmm. Just like. Like throughout the era, but also there's the things that are unique to them as well. Like, mm. like for instance, like the pins that they wear, and like as we mentioned earlier, like Crowley has like a different, um, like he has a different pair of glasses like each era, and like just and the a different wig, had, uh, yeah, wig. All of them are terrible, though. Yeah, all, all of them, them are, are bad. Like but, you know, da- David they didn't Tennant, submit for David Tennant doesn't doesn't do good like do good with red hair. Like, I mean, yeah. it works for Crowley, but not for him. If that yeah, makes no, sense. not for like. Even even David Tennant, like obviously this is a this is a novel that's been out for like thirty years. So like there, are, I love that I love seeing because of the show. There's been a resurgence, and I love seeing like people like still like refusing to accept David Tennant and Michael Sheen as as Kras. Like they they they're still using their own like yeah like um who they think the oh they're still using like their own like interpretations of the characters. Like I love seeing seeing art of of them like. As people, as, of, as people of color. Uh, yeah. No one tops our fan cast, though. Yes, our, our, our dream cast of of Azen Crowley is um, Billy mm. Porter as Aziraphale. And, and Naveen um, Andrews. Naveen Andrews yes! as Crowley. As Crowley. Um, oh, my goodness. I mostly say that because I want Naveen Andrews to to do something <laughs> i was in an op shop the other day and the only dvd there was like a whole shelf of dvds that were just lost like <gasps> yeah so much handsomeness yeah. and talent also just you know we do have to say as um, Wallowa, mm. as wlw as women yeah as Not women <laughs> loving women women aligned <laughs> people who love women like yes anathema and adria arjona <gasps> She's so beautiful. She's like, do you remember when I was watching it with you and for the first time, and I literally just kept saying every time she was, I was like, "That's the most beautiful she's person so, I've ever seen." She's just so lovely. She's so beautiful. Like, wow. Yeah. Imagine just walking around, like looking like I, I, I don't know how to say her name. Like I'm really bad. Uh, Adria. Adria. I think that's but, how you say. It. I don't know. Sorry. But imagine, but imagine just walking around looking like Adria Ajona. Like, imagine just doing that. Imagine what that would be like. I wouldn't know how to act. Oh. <laughs> so I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I actually find the romance between Anathema and Oh my god, that was the it's worst. Like, this is another point. Yeah. This whole this whole stupid show like actually still pulls the whole anathema mute romance romance i say as i do air quotes really yep. exaggeratedly. Mm. Like like anathema is just the coolest person alive right. and then you have and then you have Jack Whitehall. <laughs> like, I think Jack Whitehall is funny, but also I, I do think he was a bit weird as Newt in this as well, I think. I, I can't really think of anything I've seen him in other than this, so I don't have the previous... I mean, I guess maybe because he's been he's been a bit typecast, so this was actually breaking out from that. But, like, still, like, Anathema is, like, the coolest woman alive. She really and is. then you have this, and she's supposed to just want to bang this dude... In a hurricane. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Not in a hurricane, but like in a, in the apocalypse happening mm. right outside their door. I, I don't the, ship enough. It's really no. Like I there's re- nothing there. No, it's literally like she's just reading the prophecy, and it's like it tells her to. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's like my new way. I should just tell people, to, like, <laughs> tell people to hook up with me. It's like, just known. Oh, it's <laughs> it is known. Like my great grandmother said so. so. My great grandmother said we should bang. (laughs) So we should bang. It's heteronormativity. It's heteronormativity, but but Kraz, like, can I just like something I really love that did come across from the book to the show is like how like they're very tender, like Kraz in the show. Like I don't know this. I don't know why it gets me a lot, but the scene where like. They're sitting at the bus stop and 
like Aziraphale goes like, oh, I'm going to go back to the bookshop. And he's like, it burnt down. Like, he's like so, his voice yeah, is he, so he's, soft. He's like, he knows like how sad he would be. Yeah. So he's sad for him because he doesn't. Yeah. Oh, that's another thing. Taking on each other's qualities. Like, mm. that's some intertextual evidence for you. Basically, yeah. So we do love them, like, we, obviously. We but like, we just want more than this. Like, we don't. We don't hate anybody. No. We do We do hate Amazon, though. We do hate Amazon. But, yeah, but back to Good Omens. It is important and valuable, I think, for people like us to criticise the art of straight white men so it can hopefully improve. Yeah. And, like, not that we want to rely on straight white men to say these things for us in their art. Mm-hmm. Like, like, which is why we actually want our next episode to be about LGBT artists. Yeah, we're going to discuss our favourite LGBT filmmakers and writers of colour. We mentioned um, our girl Desiree Akavan earlier, so there will be a lot about her. Get ready for that. Homework is watch (laughs) watch, uh, Watch the the bisexual bisexual. on... on, It's on Stan if you're in Australia. If you're in Australia. It's on... I think it's on Hulu in America. Is it? Oh, yeah, and yeah. it's like a Channel 4 thing in, oh. in the UK, yeah. Or if you can't watch, watch that, the bisexual. stream stream appropriate behaviour. Yeah, or yep. the miseducation of Cameron Post. <gasps> yes, or the miseducation yeah. of Cameron Post. Um, so, yeah, just... Yeah, but we're going to be talking about our favourite LGBT filmmakers, like Desiree, and the importance of telling our own stories. Yeah, so... Yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited. Thank- so, yeah, thank you for listening to our inaugural episode of Gay V Club. I'm very proud of us I'm that we finally did this. Um, we're hoping to do Gay V Club fortnightly, so please subscribe, rate, or leave a nice review for us on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. Yes, Because uh, that would be really encouraging for us to continue because we're uni students living in two different cities yep. who want to make this work. Over two hours to come here. Yeah. Thank you. I love that you came all the way here. That's, Hell yeah. 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 Uh, follow us, please, on Twitter and Instagram at gayv underscore club, uh, where we'll be posting updates on future episodes. Um, you can also find us individually on almost every social media platform. Mary's username is aka just Mary. Mary is spelled M E R R Y. Yeah. And I'm on Twitter at Dea Hawk. So that's spelled D E A H A Q U E. Um, also a very big thank you to uh, my friend, um, Xavier Emerson, who designed our beautiful logo for us. Uh, you can see more of their graphic design work on behance.net slash be the cowboy, which is a great username. It is. And, um, that is awesome. Yeah. Um, or on Twitter at happy as Xavier. So thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Thank Hopefully you. Hopefully you can tune in again in two weeks. See you next time or thank hear you. you next time. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Hear us next time. Thank you. Bye.